I mean, I had done some projects before and I kind of run the gamut of, okay, well, I guess I'm not going to get in the Sundance and sign a three picture deal tomorrow and kind of understanding, <laughs> you know, which, which was, you know, when, Hey, when you're in your young twenties and you know, you're thinking that yeah. this is what I want to do and this is what I want to go after, which is great. I mean, it's a, it's a mm -hmm. nice dream to chase after and you know, it, it's tangible, but just hadn't worked out for me. So my perspective had, you know, had shifted a little bit to like, let's just enjoy the process and enjoy, like I had already made a couple short films and just kind of chased, you know, the festivals and I guess success right. and it's, it worked out, but maybe not in the way I thought. My name is West Gibbons and welcome back to the Tungsten Originals podcast. You just heard part of my conversation with filmmaker Jeremy Muller. We discussed producing independent projects while working professionally, his advice for budding filmmakers, and what he's learned as a second AD on Law & Order SVU. Now sit back, relax, and enjoy. Episode 67 of the Tungsten Originals Podcast. Jeremy, welcome to the podcast. How's it going? Hey, Wes. It's going good. Thank you very much for having me. Yeah, absolutely. As I was just telling you before we started recording, I feel like this episode is long overdue because we are co-workers at Law & Order SFU, and I invited you, I feel like, to come on the podcast back in like January or February, which is technically not that long ago, but feels like forever ago. <laughs> A lot has happened between now and then. Yeah, exactly. I've really enjoyed you know getting to know you through work and you know, researching the stuff that you've worked on and all your projects has been really fun. So very, very excited for this conversation. So yeah, like I said in the intro, you're an indie filmmaker, a director yourself. We met on Law & Order SVU. You're a second AD there. But before we get into all of those parts of your career, I want to learn more about how you got started in this in the first place. So when did filmmaking start becoming a part of your life? It was in my later, well, I mean, of course, I do have the stories of, you know, running around with the Fisher Price camera, you know, recording <laughs> newspaper articles. That was like one of my favorite things was to record newspaper articles. Hmm. Very interesting subject matter. <laughs> so anyway, so, you know, it felt like it was kind of ingrained from a young age. Um, but then in my late right. teens, really started to kind of take an interest in doing it as a profession. And honestly, documentary filmmaking was kind of my first, like, strong thought of something I wouldn't mind doing as a career. And then kind of in one of those, you know, moments saw a specific movie that really shifted my head towards narratives and very much feeling the comfort zone of what that would be for me creatively. And kind of went from there with the vision of being my own writer director at some point. And it's uh, still a path that I'm on and uh, mm -hmm. getting into the industry as a production assistant, as so many people do to kind of crack into an industry when you have literally no connections at all, which was my case. Um, was my path that I took and have kind of just mm -hmm. rode that path up to being a second AD on Law & Order SVU and along the way kind of kept my vision of, you know, towards filmmaking and directing on my own as much mm -hmm. as possible. Right. So did you go to film school? I did not. And okay. as I like to say, becoming a production assistant was my film school. Um, yeah. I, I was in the city for three years and had had no luck with still serving tables and making ends meet and a friend of mine in the theater world recommended being a PA and told me what that was. And she's like, you actually get paid for it. Um, and I was looking at, I was looking at film schools and they're, you know, extremely pricey as we all know, and mm. just wasn't even really an option. Yeah. So luckily walked into a set one day down in Tribeca and got hired as an unpaid intern. And that was kind of the beginning of my, what is now 17 to 18 year career <laughs> yeah. in the industry. So, uh, 
so yeah, there, you know, it took a little while, but once I was able to kind of get fortunate enough to get my foot in the door, I just worked as hard as I could and try to make good impressions and network and stay within the industry. And I guess I've managed to pull that off. Yeah, I, I definitely think so. So when you, whenever you got that first job, like, I mean, I, I assume you were like, okay, well, obviously now the need for film school is no longer there because now you are, even though you're an unpaid intern, you are working professionally in the industry. It's funny when you start up as a PA, like, you know, sometimes you know, peek through the crack of the door to see what's going on because you're placed in a lot of places where you're not involved with the action. Right. Um, but just to have those moments of being able to peek through the crack of a door at a real film set with a professional director and professional talent all around, it just made sense to me that this seems to be a pretty good place to be to learn how to make movies as opposed to going into a classroom, which I know there's a lot of benefits, you know, from and, you know, the theory and things along those lines. But to be that close where I was, it was tangible, and to backtrack mm. and to kind of going into a, you know, more of a discussion based atmosphere. And I, I loved being on set. I never enjoyed being in a classroom. <laughs> so mm. that probably can sum that up pretty quickly as to, you right. know, I honestly, Wes don't really recall thinking much about film school once I actually got onto a film set. Right. Right. I even went to film school and still being on SVU, it feels like I'm a freshman again. It feels like I'm kind of wiping what I learned and now I'm actually experiencing it firsthand and like learning things that you simply can't learn in a classroom, you know? So how long was that job, that first one? Oh God, I read about two months, I think. Okay. A, yeah, it was an, an indie film. So yeah, I think it was about two months. Okay. So after that's over, what's your next move? Well, the, the fun story, because we are all storytellers, about a week into that job, one of the, the key production assistant who was in charge of the PAs came up to me and said, you know, hey, look, I listen, I know you're working for free, but it's an, indie, it's an indie film and kind of we need all the help we can get. And you seem like you have a pretty good idea of what you're doing and you're willing to put in the effort. So if I can kind of rely on you, maybe we can develop a rapport. And then on my next job, I can get you on and get you paid. And I mean, I had nothing to lose at that point. So I just kind of kept right. doing, I just kept doing what I was doing. That show ended and I managed to get on a commercial through like another friend. And I was driving a 15 passenger van down 23rd street. And the key PA that I'm referring to saw me because they were shooting at the Chelsea hotel and we kind of made short eye contact and I kept driving, didn't think much about it. 15 minutes later, he hits me up on my phone. Did I just see you driving a van down 23rd street? <laughs> Uh, two days later, I was working on the remake of The Manchurian Candidate, um, which was a big budget feature film shooting in New York and kind of was a big deal. And that was my first paid job. And that was what the, was the beginning of just kind of being paid and being a part of the industry. So, yeah. So that must have felt like a pretty big deal to be working on a Jonathan Demi movie was surreal to like you know yeah i mean even though i was you know at the lockup that was so far away i wasn't sure if right. i was actually involved to begin with but and <laughs> I, I think we've met i was always the pa who would try to creep around the monitors or just get as close as i could and then kind of get brushed back to you know and i do my job because that's extremely important because you can't be there <laughs> unless you do your job but always uh, very curious and trying to get closer to the action but uh yeah that was a kind of a surreal feeling of I, I think you can now say you are part of this industry, even if it is from a very mm -hmm. limited standpoint. And then the goal became, what do I need to do to get closer to the action where they're actually, you know, creatively making this. So, mm -hmm. and so of course, like we were saying, when you're working on those first jobs, you're learning so, so much because it's all so brand new, even if you do have a film school background, like I do, what do you think was the biggest thing that you learned in those early 
early years of being the grunt work PA, the lockup PA? <laughs> I mean, number one is just the amount of time that you have to put in to being a part of this industry and at the part of the process. Um, I mean, it's, mm -hmm. it's can be very glamorous from the outside looking in and it's a lot of dream of people's because they think it's just going to be a lot of fun and really cool and all these things, which are all true, but mm -hmm. the amount of time and effort and energy and brain power that you have to put in to be a part of a project from the beginning to the end is it's extremely draining. And it's, I mean, it's, it's a people I've seen people get weeded out very, very quickly, yeah. especially when you have no reward as a production assistant. I mean, there's really nothing at the end of the day that, Oh, I was involved with the process or, you know, just so cool to be here. You know, I mean, it is sometimes you don't see anything that's happening on set. You're getting mm -hmm. water, you're doing very bottom of the barrel thing, but I think for those of us who can appreciate just even being at that point and sticking with it, then eventually you make progress. And like I said, kind of get closer to the action. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So after the Manchurian candidate, like, was the work starting to be more consistent? Yeah, I, d I developed um, some very good relationships, um, including with our first AD on SVU, Matt Mason, uh, Manchurian candidate is where I met him. So mm -hmm. once you get a network and you establish relationships and, you know, you are loyal to them then mm -hmm. you can kind of ride with those relationships for a while because i mean as you've learned with your time i mean the amount of time we spend together personality goes a very very long way <laughs> so yeah. Um, yeah. and we've always said like we can teach a nice person you know how to do what we do you know like if they're not nice and they're the best you know pa if you ever will or whatever it might be it's mm -hmm. you know we'd rather almost not deal with it because of the amount of time you have to spend together so right. I kind of became part of, you know, this network of, you know, friends that I knew that we all worked well together and kind of had similar visions and just, you kind of would go from show to show. And even if you broke away to do something else, you might come back, you know, after the next show. And I just kind of rode that path for a while and was very fortunate to work on some incredible projects and have mm -hmm. amazing life experiences. And it was uh, kind of the glory years of my production career. I like to refer to as. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> yeah, I was I was looking through your IMDb and I saw that you worked on Boyhood. That seems like a really cool film to be a part of. It was. Um, I mean, I so I've lived in New York for quite a while, as you know, and that's where my production career started. And then I spent time in Austin, Texas, and there were two filmmakers. I was very interested. One one of the main draws of Austin um, from leaving New York was the independent film scene. Um, and mm. in Austin, it's, it's just a great scene of a lot of creative people that want to get together and just make art and they don't really care mm. too much about the bottom line. They don't really care too much about the success. It's just kind of enjoying what the art, the, the process of art is. So that was like a really cool thing to kind of walk into. But as I moved to Austin, um, and was really into the film scene, become very intrigued by Richard Linklater and what he was all about and what he represented. And then got to be a part of a few of his movies. I also did Bernie and everybody wants some which mm -hmm. was great. Boyhood was interesting, but it's funny because of all my experiences. I mean, it was, I did one year of Boyhood, which was equal to three days of shooting. <laughs> so it's one of, wow. it's one of the biggest, <laughs> it's one of my biggest credits and it's something everybody asks me about, but it's honestly right. like a blip on the radar because it was, it was honestly West, a handful of us who got together on a weekend and shot a few scenes for the movie. It was as casual as you can imagine. It was a no way what felt was going to be like, you know, a transcending film that was going to be nominated <laughs> for awards. Like, right. it was just, I mean, but that's kind of the way things also were, were done in Austin. I mean, things are just a little mm -hmm. more simple and not as big of a deal from a production standpoint. So it was very cool to be a part of it. Mm -hmm. I guess maybe the experience was not as big as the outcome of the project by any means. Right. But, but right. to be a part of what Rick was doing 
was incredible because I had heard about it as soon as I got there. I mean, it was there was this myth of this project that Richard Linkletter was making, where you know, he'd been shooting it for whatever it was at that point, seven or eight years, and right. like it was, it's still confusing to get the concept of it, you know, until you become a part of it. And it's like, oh wait, we we just shot this year. And it's like, yeah, that's year year ten or year nine, I think was the one I did. And they'll get together next year and they'll do the same thing. And then when it wow. came out as a movie put together, I mean, that's when my mind was blown, like. Wow, that's yeah. pretty incredible what this guy accomplished because it was so seamless and so smooth. Like mm-hmm. it felt like it was shot over two to three months, but not the case at all. So yeah. very, very cool to be a part of that and anything that Linkletter has right. done. So I'm glad you brought up what the Austin film scene is like because I've learned a lot just in the past few months of being in New York about the New York film scene and like what the industry is like here versus other places. A lot of SCAD people, you know, go to Atlanta or LA. So can you talk about where like the film hub you live in affects the kind of work that you're able to get? Because I guess I kind of left film school with this idea of like, you can find the work anywhere, which is certainly true. But, um, you know, I've learned that New York is like a big TV and commercial place. So like, what have you learned working in New York a lot and in those other film hubs? It's definitely finding the people. Uh, I was asked this question at a film festival, like, you know, do you have to live in New York or LA in order to, you know, make movies? And as you have learned and proven, you know, the answer is absolutely not, especially in this day and age. I'm, you know, probably a different answer 40 years ago. Right. So I, I think it's the people. And for whatever reason, in my 10 years in New York, when I was a part of the industry working as a production assistant, and, you know, it was people who were trying to get paid. And there were people who had, who wanted to be independent filmmakers or directors, but just didn't really find a network that was willing to just say, hey, let's just go out and do it. And you need a couple people who are just willing to make that plunge with you, whether there's any money or whether the story's incredible, just, you know, let's just go out and have some fun. Yeah. And after, you know, a short amount of time in Austin, I, I met a couple people who were just a hundred percent like that and just were always game and helped motivate me and helped inspire me because you also need that along those lines. And it just kind of clicked and I still, you know, love radio. Now that I'm back in the Northeast, my, I have a creative network that, you know, helped create love radio that is still back in Austin. And I refer to as my creative network and one of my best friends, who's just a sounding board. And that guy, when you're like, Hey, I got the best idea in the world. And we talk to each other and bounce ideas off of, he lives in Austin. So, uh, so was, yeah, I was just able to kind of find a good network of people there kind of were relatable and mm-hmm. humble enough to, you know, get our hands dirty and just try to try to make smart do something fun. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I'm really glad you brought up Love Radio because that's one of the main things I wanted to talk to you about. Love Radio is this great episodic series that you are working on. Could you give a little like elevator pitch to the audience on what it's about? Uh, love Radio takes place at a radio station that plays nothing but love songs and is run by a very overzealous station manager. And the lead of the series is a DJ whose dreams are to DJ a rock and roll format um, at a rock and roll format D- t- uh, radio station, as opposed to a radio station that plays nothing but love songs. So kind of a lot of it revolves around the relationship between the station manager and the DJ and just kind of the fun that can happen at a radio station, which, you know, I think it's kind of been a while since we've seen anything along those lines from an episodic or sitcom standpoint. Um, I think I mentioned WKRP in Cincinnati is one that I think of that. And that was a news radio, which, you know, was talk radio, but not necessarily music, but still took place at a radio station. So just kind of thought that was a fun and cool environment to, you know, 
to kind of tell a story with some good characters because you know we all know it's all about the characters so yeah yeah exactly so when did you start working on this because i know you have two episodes done but you still have one episode that you're waiting to make so when did this all start building strangely enough it wasn't until i left austin and moved back to the northeast that this idea even kind of triggered um i I think it was on one of our trips back and forth and super simple idea literally in the car said it out loud to my wife as you know you have a million of these ideas a day and sometimes some of them stick and this one just happened to stick and it stuck because I immediately thought of two actors that I worked with in Austin um, on a Richard Linklater movie who I got to know really well and were good buddies and two of like the most opposite people I've ever met who just got along as well as they did. Also both extremely talented. So doing something with the two of them kind of was the idea. And then the idea of Love Radio and just that format kind of meshed in and we, we hadn't found a place to live yet in Pennsylvania, but so I was at my aunt and uncle's house and recall the moment of emailing both of them, just simply saying, how you guys doing? I have this idea. Honestly, Wes, not even sure how well they would have remembered me, you know, or anything along those <laughs> lines. It was really kind of a shot in the dark. I mean, I was the second, second AD on the movie with them. So I did get to know them very well. Um, mm-hmm. And actually I did two movies with Justin Street, um, who plays the station manager. So I had a little bit of more of a rapport with him. Strangely enough, the response I got from them um, was extremely enthusiastic because supposedly days before they received my email, the two of them got together in LA and were having a conversation about how fun it would be to do like a fun buddy project together. Oh, wow. (laughs) So, I mean, timing is everything and we all know this. um, and, And I mean... But timing doesn't happen unless you put forth the effort. And as you know, I mean, Mm -hmm. it it took a lot of, I mean, you know, those moments, I'm going to send this email out, who knows if I'll ever hear anything. And I'm not some, I'm not very good without closure. You know, I'd rather they email me back and be like, worst idea ever. Please don't email me ever again. (laughs) As opposed to, I still haven't heard back from them. So, you know, just to, (laughs) to kind of finally, you know, take that step and throw it out there. And my, my wife was encouraging. She liked the idea. She knew Justin and Austin were two incredible people. So, uh, and then once I had them interested, all the other dominoes just fell. I mean, as soon as I called friends and I'm like, Hey, I got, you know, you know, Austin Emilio at the time was on fear of the walking dead and, you know, kind of had a pretty decent fan base. Um, and everyone in Austin, Justin street is from a legendary family in Austin, Texas. Um, so Mm. everyone kind of knows him and likes him. So as soon as people knew I was doing a project with, you know, kind of cool people like that, if you will, people were more than happy to jump on board and participate. So, wow, that's really cool. So with love radio, was that like, you just kind of wanted to make it or were you thinking like, I want to develop something to pitch to companies to, you know, maybe be picked up or something like that? Or was it just for the pure joy of creating something? I The, the goal is to professionally direct and be able to make a living by directing. So any project that I come up with and go forth with that there, of course, is always an ounce of is there something I can do to pitch this in order to get myself into a place mm-hmm. where I'm actually making a living doing this? Mm-hmm. Very minimal with Love Radio, though. Um, I mean, I had done some projects before and I kind of run the gamut of, okay, well, I guess I'm not going to get in the Sundance and sign a three-picture deal tomorrow. And kind of understanding, <laughs> you know, which which was, you know, when hey, when you're in your young 20s and, you know, you're thinking that yeah. this is what I want to do and this is what I want to go after, which is great. I mean, it's a, it's a mm-hmm. nice dream to chase after and you know, it, it's tangible, but just hadn't worked out for me. So my perspective had, you know, had shifted a little bit to like, let's just enjoy the process and enjoy, like I had already made a couple short films and just kind of chased, you know, the festivals and I guess success right. and it's, it worked out, but maybe not in the way I thought. So love radio was let's just get together and have some fun making a movie creatively. I, 
you know, as a young filmmaker, I think a lot of people can relate to how protective you are of your vision. And my, the first thing I ever did, somebody actually left a friend of mine who I had been working with before. He left the project a couple days in and quite simply it was because I was not listening to him and not taking suggestions. I was, you know, I was like 22 years old, if you will. And this was my vision and this is what I was going to do. And this is a Jeremy J. Moeller project. Everybody. <laughs> Great lesson to learn at a very young age, probably yeah. one of the smartest people. And, you know, it, I, I love that he left because it took me, you know, a little while he, you know, he came up with some excuse why I had to get back to the city or something like that. But then I kind of put it together. Um, and it was a very good learning lesson. And I tried to grow out of that each time to the point where I got to love radio. I was like, everybody and anybody put it on the table, completely collaborative. Like, yes, I, I called my script a blueprint and told the cast mm. that as well. Like, you know, two very funny, creative guys. Um, and just like, what the, you know, here's our blueprint. Let's all get together and go forth and kind of see what happens and mm. have a lot of fun doing it. And it was, it was so much fun. We did it again and are hoping to get together to do it at least one more time. Yeah. Yeah. And it was, a, it, and it was just a great learning experience. I mean, even uh, there was something in the script that Austin completely interpreted different than I did. Uh, there's so if, if the audience goes and watches this, there's a, a comment about Michael Bolton and one of the DJs is playing Michael Bolton. And I wrote it as if this is a joke. Like he's being, so Austin comes, Austin's character comes in and the DJ before him mentions how he's played Michael Bolton and Austin, whose character, who's kind of the hip, cool character is supposed to sarcastically make fun of the fact that this DJ played Michael Bolton. Well, Austin read it as no, like he's actually offended because he loves Michael Bolton and he wants to play Michael Bolton, which complete opposite of what I you know right. wrote down, but so much more funny and such mm -hmm. a better play on it. And that, you know, those are those are those moments where you're like, oh my gosh, I'm yeah. glad I'm not a closed-minded director because you would miss out on so many amazing moments like that. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah. So, so that that's yeah. what made Love Radio so much fun. And I think why it turned out kind of the way it did, just because of let's just get together and have some fun and make something that, you know, hopefully people will enjoy watching. Yeah, I, I think that can also influence like the end product to the audience. Like I think as an audience member, you can tell when people enjoyed making something or when they didn't, or when, like you said, it was a collaborative effort in which everyone felt as if their opinion was heard instead of like in our tour, you know, filmmakers type vision. And I definitely got that by watching Love Radio. I was like, these are just some filmmakers coming together and doing what they do best and having like a ton of fun with it. And as an audience, it's like giving you permission to have fun as well. So I definitely got that whenever I was watching it. Well, that's great. I, I really appreciate that. It, yeah. It's also a good way to get people to come back and maybe work for free again. <laughs> right. <laughs> because yeah. you know you can ask people to work for free once when you ask them to do it again yeah. you're, you know you're really pressing your luck or at least you understand when they say no but when it's when it was such an enjoyable experience it's like yeah let's all get back together again and you know have the party and make another one so and that's i'm trying to bank on that again because it is right as you also know it's difficult to get everybody together and it was difficult yeah. to get people together a year ago and now with the current mm -hmm. situation even more difficult so right but when it's friends coming together to hang out and you know make some art a lot of people show up yeah and i'm i'm glad you brought up the whole like if you're if you treat people well you know they'll treat you well that's a conversation that i've been having with a few of the past guests people who are my peers from scad you know other indie filmmakers that are stumbling their way through the industry and trying to figure figure out this big world as we all are and specifically this episode with nicole barley who's a filmmaker that i'm uh working with on a, a few short films we were talking about how like there's this idea 
inside the industry and just like kind of outside that you hear like, oh, well, everyone's an asshole, you know, and you just have to deal with it because people are assholes. And um, I don't know, we were kind of just talking about how like that it doesn't have to be that way. Like you actually make a better project if people are enjoying working on it. And I, that's definitely a fear of mine when I'm making something like I, of course, want the thing to be good and I want the story to be effective and to connect with audiences. But it's such a fear of mine that that a crew is going to go away and I'm going to be the director of the set that they talk about. That was like, that was a shit show <laughs> or that was <laughs> terrible for X, Y, and Z. You know what I mean? <laughs> yes. So very, very glad that other people think that same way. So I want to dive into your experience working on SVU and how you got you know into that world. So I know you said you met Matt Mason. Is like, how soon after that project did he bring you to SVU or did you both end up at SVU? Uh, uh, like a decade and a lifetime in between. Okay. <laughs> so yeah, so so Matt and I came up as production assistants like right along the same time and kind of had been doing mm -hmm. it around about the same amount of a time. I think he started before me, but you know, really just clicked and got along. He's also an extremely creative guy who has quite a life outside of the world of production, um, you know, which is something as we've talked is important and something that, you know, I, I bond with people along those lines. So uh, I left New York and kind of retired from being a production assistant, but Matt and I stayed buddies. Uh, he had some ties to Austin, Texas. His band came and played there once uh, and we just stayed in touch. I mean, you know, you know how it is when you move away. I mean, some, the mm -hmm. sometimes the people you know for sure you're going to stay in touch with, you don't. And sometimes the people you stay in touch with, you're very surprised by. But it's a very interesting filtering process. I've learned from doing yeah. that a few different times because the people you do stay in touch with, it's true and it's real. Um, and that was the case with Matt. I was in Austin for seven years and then came back to the Northeast and, you know, still making a living in the world of production and, you know, reached out to him and he was happy to bring me on SVU kind of part time. And I managed to get on some other projects and get my foot in the door um, in some other networks. You know, I, I actually interviewed to be on the show full time when I first moved back and was a little intimidated because of the longevity of it. And I have children mm -hmm. and having lived in the logistics of my commute and so on. So it didn't work out at that point, but then honestly, right before COVID, I was on the show part-time one day and he mentioned the idea of me possibly coming on full-time when the, you know, when the show came back and the show got shut down three or four days after the fact. So, you know, <laughs> that kind of scrambled that whole plan. But then yeah. once we got through COVID and they got back to work, he gave me the call. And at that point it was the easiest yes I had ever you know had mm -hmm. when it came to taking work for so many obvious reasons, but um, you know, an incredible opportunity on an incredible show with, like we discussed, a lot of really good people. Yeah. You know, to elaborate a little bit on your point about just the industry becoming nicer, it has in, you know, the almost yeah. two decades I've been a part of it. And granted, I started as a low-end PA who they get treated differently, even sometimes by the nicest people. Mm -hmm. But now, not necessarily. Like now, I think people have learned that, you know, you can still accomplish this and you can still have authority and people will still listen to you and you'll still have mm -hmm. your control and sometimes maybe even a different, better way if you're kind about yeah. it. And that's just been like a really kind of interesting thing to see over my time. So um, that was just a little side note along those lines. But yeah, so um, got the opportunity and hopped on board. And as I mentioned earlier, I have had my head down for the past seven months and now I am in the middle of prepping my last episode of season 22. Yeah. Yeah, got about a month left, actually. So I feel like an episodic show like SVU that's been running for almost my entire life, <laughs> I think something like that is a really cool learning experience for a director because like as a second AD, you're getting a, to work with a new director 
pretty consistently. Like, of course, I mean, you know, SVU, like at least it seems I'm, I'm acting like I'm an expert and I know the least amount, but it seems like there's like a rotation of people, you know, a pool of directors that they pull from. But can you talk about what you have learned from working with these new directors? It is. Uh, it's been a little different during COVID. I think mm-hmm. normally they have a, almost a different director every episode during a, a regular right. season. Um, this season they brought on like for the first half three and they just alternated, uh, which was neat because as opposed to one coming and going, I actually did get to develop a little bit of rapport and work on a couple of different episodes like uh, Baton Silva, who I just did three consecutive episodes with. It From the position that I'm in, which, you know, is a lot of scheduling and things along those lines, but I get to, like we talked about the film school of it. And this is a side that I've never been a part of because the preparation for episodic TV is so unbelievably critical, as it is in a feature film as well. But when you have the limited amount of time and space to accomplish what they do in episodic TV, if you're not prepared, disaster. So Mm. watching the way directors prepare, the amount of questions that they have to answer, how important every little minute detail is, because that if that answer is not taken care of ahead of time, that could turn into a two hour thing the day of. And that's not the kind of thing you have time to lose. Yeah. And the political aspect of it, especially in a time of covid where you have to be willing to have an open mind, mm-hmm. to watch the way the writers of this show and the director and the showrunner and the ADs and the producers have all come together to collaborate in order to make this happen. And the sacrifices they've had to make, whether it's creatively or the bottom line or from a timing standpoint, but in order to get this done, it's been a kind of, I mean, it's been incredible to watch, mm-hmm. especially during COVID times. So that's, those are kind of kind of more of the behind the scenes kind of political things that I've been able to kind of pull away from being a second AD on another side of television mm-hmm. show along these lines. Yeah. So has, do you think that experience and what you've learned has changed your approach to being in those decisions, like being the director and the producer? Absolutely. The, the thought of even this, just this season alone of let's say I, I got a job as a director before the season of SVU up until now completely changes the way that I would kind of handle a lot of situations. And I mean, I I think there's this idea that if you're the director, that you're the boss and you're in charge and you're there to tell everybody what to do. And there are some directors that are like that. And there are, you know, I've I've worked on a Michael Bay set. That's a hundred percent what Michael (laughs) Bay is like. (laughs) That's what I've heard. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, His first AD will argue with him who I actually know. And that's very entertaining. But with the exception of that, I mean, it's just, it's that kind of stereotypical thing that a lot of us fear to be perfectly, you know, honest. Yeah. But to be a director who is again, just open-minded and willing to, you know, kind of not sacrifice their creativity, but just bend it in a different direction where for the sake of the process and the greater good, which is accomplishing, you know, a complete episode of television is willing to do so without any ego or any fight or anything along those lines. Mm-hmm. I mean, yeah, we, we all have our visions and our dreams and our, you know, creative goals that we want to stick to, but, but they can kind of, you know, if you're too stubborn about it, I think that can get in the way of you accomplishing what you're really trying to. Mm-hmm. I, I really want to go, kind of bring the audience to the conversations that we have at work about having your, you know, the day film job, but also keeping that creative fire inside of you and doing things, you know, outside of work on your own volition. That is something that I think I had a really bright eyed, naive idea about before I moved up here. You know, I kind of had this idea of like, I'll, I'll get any job that I need to pay the bills. And then I'll just like work 
100% of my free time on making stuff. And that is like possible, but in a way, but I think film students and film graduates, maybe it can, you can be hit in the face with like, like you said, how much time you can dedicate just to being a PA, like 12 to 14 days on set and then the commute. And like, that's your, that's your life Monday through Friday, you know? And so the time can almost evaporate in a way. So how do you exercise that? Like, of course, during COVID, it's hard to make anything, but how do you exercise that? Like, self-discipline to keep those um passion projects going even whenever you have this full-time job and a family to take care of and all of that kind of stuff that's kind of a natural fire that mm-hmm. doesn't go away even you know even when i think it might not be there you know I, I bump into you in the hallway and you know five seconds later we're having a great creative discussion about stuff that has nothing to do with SVU or call sheets or COVID or whatever it is that we're right. doing at that time. <laughs> yeah. Um, so that's, and that's the natural part of me that the, the comfort that I have with chasing this dream is, you know, when I kind of tapped into that comfort zone of like, this is what I really would like to do for a living. And if I never find a way to be paid professionally to support my family to do it, that's fine. I'm still going to chase this because it's just a part mm-hmm. of who I am. And, you know, if I continue to make movies and they're as successful as love radio, that's great. As long as I keep, you know, I can keep making them. Um, that's kind of the mindset I've went to and it's more relaxing that way. And I think better for, you know, my process, you know, you put a lot of pressure on yourself as a young filmmaker to produce something kind of overnight that, you know, people are going to notice and, you know, kind of put you on a pedestal so that you can go off and start making things on your own and making money, money doing them. But as you realize that that isn't always as attainable right away, you kind of have to shift your mindset and be a little more open-minded to the possibilities in front of you. And that's, I mean, if you talked to me 10 years ago about being an episodic television director, I probably would have scoffed at the idea because, you know, even, even then I was still very focused on, you know, one task at hand, but I have now shifted Mm -hmm. gears. And I, I think that's also been another thing episodic television directors do get a lot more creative input than I ever thought. Mm. I, I did. I worked on a show in Austin that kind of wasn't a very, it wasn't the quality of law and order or Friday night lights. Another show that I worked on, you know, which is quality episodic television. This, this was not, did not fall along those lines and was really just left kind of a bad taste in my mouth. Like, Oh, this is, you know, what make, make an episodic TV is I want absolutely nothing to do with it. You know, like it's, it's almost mm. like working on commercials in a way. Mm-hmm. So, but to see on shows like this, the amount of create, how important the creative integrity of what they stay true to um, is and how important the director's vision is upon that. It's like, that's, that's actually really cool. And the idea of going into a show that's already established, um, you know, like, like a Friday night lights was or law and order and having to be a director that kind of, I mean, you, you take the wheel, but you know, it's not your car. I mean, it's been built by somebody else and the motor runs by somebody else and somebody else is actually even telling you where to go, but you have to drive all these people, you know, along the lines of them being nice to you, you know, being kind to them and treating them correctly because, you know, it's their show. You're, you're a guest as an episodic television director. So, but it's become much more of an intriguing idea to me and something that I'm becoming more open-minded to. And now as an AD, I'm paying attention as somebody who would like to go on to be an episodic television director as opposed to a filmmaker, um, which I would say Mm. are two very different things. Right. So now with that new perspective, is there a show, whether it's long running like SVU or, or a shorter series that you look at that you wish in an alternate universe, you are one of the directors on that hasn't already been made that like does currently that is like already been made. I mean, I, I've, I've already mentioned it and everybody, I mean, it, it's my, my favorite television show of all time is Friday Night Lights. I was a mm. fan of the show before I moved to Austin. Uh, this is a short part of my Austin story, but another one of those two, like 
that I'll, I'll tell young people as you're coming along in this industry, as discouraging it can be, every now and then there's a moment where it kind of makes sense that you're supposed to be there. Um, and Friday Night Lights was that moment for me when I moved to Texas because I had stopped being a production assistant in New York. Um, I was like a director's assistant. I did some editorial work, but just honestly was done with the grunt work of being a PA and was at that point not going to continue to get into the DGA and become an AD in that whole process. So moved to Austin and had a hard time kind of making ends meet. Had one name of an AD I was given to before I left. Reach out to that person, got an email back, and it turned out that they were starting up season four of Friday Night Lights. And long story short, two weeks later, I was on the show full time and did almost all of season four and then did season five and was a fan of the show before. So that was like just kind of, and like a big fan of the show. Like, you know, like, I mean, it was mm -hmm. kind of like, boy, if I could go work on my dream show, it'd be like Friday Night Lights. And that actually right. ended up happening. Uh, and the creative network within that show, I mean, I, I'm a sports fan. Um, I kind of love how intense the world of football is. And there's just a lot of things about that show that I can relate to. I'm from a very small town, as I know you are too, which anybody from a small town can, I mean, there's so many good small town moments in that show. So, yeah. I mean, if when all said and done, if there was a show that in the history of television I could go and direct an episode of, it would have to be Friday Night Lights. And I'm not even sure if there's a close second cheers comes to mind <laughs> you yeah. know some of the classic episodic you know shows that i that i grew up watching um you know I, mm -hmm. I watched the cheers pilot probably i mean i don't know what the record is but i have a feeling i might be in the conversation i love watching pilots of, <laughs> of any successful television show and the cheers yeah. pilot is it's it's like that song that you know you want to listen to like every day because it's just one of your all-time favorite songs and i'm a huge fan of that pilot so <laughs> Yeah, that's great. Friday Night Lights and then maybe position five, cheers. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I like that. I like that. That's a fun question. Yeah, yeah. I'm I'm glad you brought up being in the DGA because that is another thing that was a foreign concept to me. And it's kind of still a foreign concept to me about how that all works. So of course the it's the Directors Guild of America, but can you kind of explain like how you got involved and then how that can be a benefit to people who want to do what we want to do well i mean it's so it's it's a unionized position within our industry and the only way that you can work as you know at being a production assistant is non-union and therefore you're not paid very much and you're asked to work very long hours and there's really nothing you can do about it um, which you know can become very tiresome and troubling but once you've done that for long enough and proven your worth then the director's guild of america will welcome you in and then you can work professionally as an assistant director where the pay increase is very significant and now you're getting health insurance and benefits and building a pension and doing kind of all the normal things that a lot of freelancers, you know, never get the opportunity to do. It was never, never my goal and never my vision. And honestly, I was kind of against it in the beginning because again, I was blinders were on. I'm going to be a filmmaker. This is what I'm going to do. But then as time progressed and life progressed, and I actually ended up getting all these days, you know, you have to have 700 days as a production assistant in order to join the Director's Guild of America, which is a long time on a set. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and I mean, SVU is a very long running project, but most projects, you know, you'll get between 20 and 50 days out of it. So you can, you know, do the math as to how long it would take to do that. So I, I had accomplished that almost without that being the goal. I was just continuing as mm -hmm. a production assistant. That was my job. But at the same time, was building up all these days um, that qualified me to do so. And then when my wife got pregnant and real reality settled in, and I realized <laughs> being a production assistant, even if it is on my favorite show in the history of television, <laughs> is probably not going to take care of what needs to be taken care of, then yeah. I made the decision. And, and obviously, you have, to, you have to put your book together, which is 
call sheets and PR, PRs and all this paperwork proving that you worked every single one of these days. And it is a very daunting task, especially for us creative people who you know, don't like putting together call sheets and spreadsheets and <laughs> things along those lines. So thankfully, my wife helped me with that, which was great. And I highly recommend anybody getting help doing that. I mean, there's actually people you can pay who will do it for you. <laughs> mm, wow. um, but because people have gotten discouraged, you know, I know people, it's like, oh, I'm halfway through my book. And you see him six months later, and it's like, hey, I'd love to hire you on this job. Is your book in yet? Oh, I just haven't finished putting it together. I mean, they'll mm -hmm. do the 700 days, but to sit down and put that book together is just a weird thing that they make it to. <laughs> so, yeah. Um, so yeah, so that I got into the guild and started working, um, as a second, second AD in Austin, which again, from a filmmaking standpoint, when I went to work on a Richard Linklater movie, I was right next to him. I was involved with the process because I'm an assistant director now, as opposed to being a PA. So from the standpoint mm -hmm. of just trying to work your way up the ladder to get closer to the inner workings, you know, of who's actually making the film, it's, it's a step even closer. I mean, being the key PA. Um, which you're essentially in charge of all the production assistants. You get to spend time by the monitors and the director. And that was my first step. And then you keep kind of progressing up and, until you become a key second AD. And then you're never really around the director. But <laughs> that's, uh, that's the unique thing about being a second AD. So especially mm -hmm. in a world of COVID. But yeah. So is becoming a DGA, is that like more prevalent in the TV world or the feature world? Or is it pretty much the same? It's the same. Yeah, okay. it, it's both. I mean, the yeah, I'm not, once you're part of the Directors Guild of America, it's, you know, you're unionized to work in film or television production. Right. Okay. Now, like, like you said, we're, we're about to wrap up this season. And of course, things are still super uncertain with COVID and all that kind of stuff. But how do you see your career moving forward? Like, what's what is potentially the next step for Jeremy Muller? <laughs> That's always the million dollar question as you approach the end of these projects. Um, yeah. Well, I need to keep paying bills. And as uh, we've summarized in this discussion, that production work is how I do that. So I will kind of wait for the next opportunity. I don't know if it'll be another season of SVU or something different. So I'll just kind of, you know, wait and see how the universe dictates that. But I will dive headfirst back into my creative world. Um, I would like to conclude Love Radio with a third and final episode. We had talked about continuing it, and I have you know three or four episodes written, but kind of shifted gears during this time of I'd really like to kind of conclude it and discuss how difficult it is to get everyone together. So if I can mm -hmm. get everyone together one more time, I'd kind of like to make it a bigger deal and kind of you know put a jar on the on the lid of what is Love Radio. So that's going to be kind of my first focus at hand. And then, you know, just write. Um, that's during working as an AD, um, you know, you mentioned earlier, just, you know, the amount of time it takes to be a part of a film set and when you're working in the industry and when you get home at night, as much as I'd, you know, love to spend two hours writing, it just isn't there and it's going to come out as some yeah. gibberish. So to kind of filter out what is the AD in my head right now and kind of shift the gears back into the, the creative aspect of my career is what I'll do. And writing is just the best way to do that. Just, you know, simply sit down with, pen and paper and I have I have a couple features that I'm always tweaking and working on and I have another mm -hmm. idea I'd like to go forth with but that that always just seems to be step one you know and my advice right. to anybody who's in a, a creative rut you know and it's um, it's no profound advice that's been said a million times but just sitting down and start writing and you know and, and force yourself to sit there for you know an hour you know not the 10 minutes and like mm -hmm. nothing cool comes out or whatever it is like really just spend time there and just write whatever comes out and it's one of my fun funnest things to do I mean even if 
you know, you reflect upon it and it's all kind of garbage just to kind of do that's a really fun exercise. Yeah, totally. So it's been really interesting to to learn about your career and all of the like different ways that it unexpectedly meanders just as it does for everybody. So if you could go back in time and talk to the version of you when you are that unpaid intern um, on your very first thing, what golden nugget of advice do you think you would give young Jeremy? <laughs> Should have prepped me for this one, Wes. This is a good one. Thank you. I love asking people this question. <laughs> yeah, that's it. That's a that's a, that's the you know if you could write ten year old Jeremy a letter, what would you tell him? Which is still right. you know. I mean, my nice my instinctful answer is there's nothing immediate. Like I think a lot of people in a would answer a question like this with something of regret. You know, like oh, I wish I told. I wish I would tell him to do this or don't do this. And it's been such an interesting process of some things you have control over and some things you don't. Like, I don't know if there's anything that I could tell, you know, the PA who was on that first unpaid, you know, as an unpaid internship, like, hey, this is the direction that you should continue to go in or you should do this differently. I, I, I think the thing that I would tell a young Jeremy or production assistant in this industry is don't get discouraged. Don't let your discouragement get the best of you. Uh, mm. You have to build up thick skin very quickly. I'm an extremely sensitive individual um, and take things overly serious and, you know, things along those lines, which does, does, it doesn't mesh well with this industry. So it took a while for me to, you know, I mean, there, sometimes you just have to go blow some steam off, you know, or go vent to your, you know, significant other, or your friend. I mean, that's why there's so many good relationships are built in the world of production assistance because, they're constantly having to bond together the vent about how difficult things are. <laughs> yeah. Um, I mean, like, you know, the, the industry is the enemy to production assistance in a way. So, I mean, the, you know, yeah. when you all have that common enemy, you know, of course you just become, that's, you know, you bond around that and that Matt right. and I have that bond that will never, you know, be, no one will ever take that away from us. And we still have that bond, even the position we're in reflecting upon where we were and the things that we had to go through. So it, it can, as hard as it is and as discouraging as it is, and as much as it can really test your character, the reward of being a part of it is something that you'll know if it is, you know, a world you should be a part of. And I think if mm. you're not, that I think that that becomes very clear and yeah. I guess too bad, but unless you, have, you figured it out, so great. I don't know. I don't yeah. know how that feels, <laughs> thankfully. Right, right, exactly. <laughs> very grateful. Um, <laughs> Yeah. Well, I, I got to say, I'm so glad we met each other on SVU. As a member of the COVID team, you feel kind of separated from the rest of the crew, you know, because we're lugging around scrubbers and like taking temperatures and asking people the same three annoying questions that they're <laughs> as tired of they are as hearing them. We are equally tired of saying them, you know, but I have learned so much from our discussions and I've loved that we've like connected on the small town filmmaker with the chip on her shoulder type mindset. And I just remembered that I never explained the whole story of how we met. Obviously we met on SVU, but I think it is a little bit funny to explain that my very first day at work, I had multiple people telling me that I looked like you. <laughs> they said, do you know Jeremy? And I'm like, I'm, I've been here for two hours. I don't know anybody. I don't even know my bosses barely, you know? And I just had multiple people telling me I looked like you. And then I met you. And then I remember one day coming into work, it was probably 6am. People are still waking up. And someone says to me, morning, Jeremy. And I look around, I look behind me because I think you're behind me and it's just me, <laughs> but they had already passed. So you know, someone probably thought you were rude to not say good morning to them that day. Well, because the, it the was shocking me. thing is that people say good morning to you, thought you were me, but didn't ask you a question. <laughs> right. Because it's very right. rare, you know, when I make my appearance in your world, I mean, usually in that length of the hallway, because 
you know, people who are part of this show, I, I answer a lot of questions for people because I exactly. do a lot of the scheduling and I know a lot of the information before anybody else does. It's a huge part of my job. So right. usually the first thing people say to me is, is a question. So it's nice. Right. Uh, but, <laughs> but yeah, that was, uh, that was kind of a funny coincidence. And then you got to be my son, um, which worked out great. And yeah. I, as we walked away, I said, you know, that's the guy a lot of people say, it looks like me. He goes, yeah, daddy, he looks like a younger you. <laughs> I said, I, well, you're right. Cause he is younger. He does look like that me. Is, so, yeah, exactly. so, that's true. a very strange bond that we have, but it is true. Yeah, exactly. I take it as a compliment. <laughs> and it's cool. You know, you mentioned the whole COVID thing. And I mean, it's such a, we are such an, industry of repetition and just, you know, habits. And so mm. all of a sudden there is this completely separate entity that those of us who've been a part of this industry forever have never had to deal with. And right. I mean, a, a, an, an aspect of authority, I mean, of, of having to us having to answer to the COVID world and comply yeah. with the COVID world and do these things, you know, that were being asked of people. And at first it was, it was a little bizarre. Um, I'm, the assistant director office at SVU that had been the assistant director office for, I don't know how long, got taken over by the COVID team. Right. It still says assistant directors over it. <laughs> I, I, I mean, I know there's some people that are never going to get it. It was a tradition of that show was that office. Um, and I, wow. it was before I was on full time, <laughs> but I know some people that were very bent out of shape about the fact that that office yeah. got taken away. Um, again, the, this was kind of before my time, so I didn't take it personally by any means. And I ended up with a pretty <laughs> right. nice office to begin with so it all right. kind of worked out so it was kind of weird in the beginning but now i i hope your team feels this way because it's the truth but you guys are you're just part of the team now i mean it's just another yeah. aspect of the crew and i mean there's yeah. a lot of us there who are doing things that maybe aren't directly connected to you know rolling and cut on set if you will but mm -hmm. we're all there for the greater good of making a show and without you know what you do and what elizabeth does i mean it just it wouldn't be possible as cheesy as it sounds. So yeah, yeah. Um, it's been cool. And I, I actually went and tested at another show for the first time last week and kind of mm. got a taste of the other, you know, world, if you will. And what we our setup and stuff is very comfortable and very nice. And yeah, I mean, we just, we just have a lot of good people there and it's, uh, I'm appreciating it more now towards the end than I ever have. So, yeah. Well, on behalf of the COVID team, we appreciate it. <laughs> it, it is an interesting position to be in because like, I interact with literally every single person at the beginning of the day. And so um, there's like no one I don't know now, now that I'm months into it, I, I can tell you exactly who someone is and like what their temperature typically is. Well, that's great. I mean, the, think of your network and the way it's grown. Yeah. I mean, just, you know, just simply from, you know, some phone numbers or emails. I mean, you know, we're a perfect example of that, but, you know, and it's another... Mm. I think another good life lesson, like whatever it is to get your foot in the door of the industry, which can be very difficult. And if you want to be in yeah. camera and your only option is to, you know, be a prop assistant or whatever it might be, you know, just get in the door and then yep. start kind of navigating your way through, which is what I'm watching you do. And I'm excited to see what you do with it. Yeah. Well, thank you. I really appreciate it. And I hope we get to work on something together outside of the SVU world on one of our passion projects. I think that'd be really, really fun. So I would enjoy that as well. And thank you for bringing me to be a part of this. Yeah, absolutely. And everyone, thank you so much for listening to this episode. If you listen to the audio only version, be sure to check out the YouTube video. You can see some behind the scenes content from Love Radio and all these other projects of Jeremy's that we talked about. Yeah, just be sure to follow us on those social media things. And the next episode will come out on Monday at 9 a.m. Jeremy, thank you again. And uh, yeah, see everybody in the next one. All right, thank you, Wes. Take care. You too.